Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as Pastor Dane Skelton shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Dane. Well, if you will open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 is where we'll be bearing down today. I'm in the third message in a series of four called Rebuilding the Sacred Community, Living the Good Life, Living the Good Life. And our text today is all about us and how we are supposed to live in this world. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. The older versions would say, sojourners and pilgrims. So the emphasis is just is on our temporary stay here and the fact that we're from someplace else. I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. A man who had no interest in spiritual things had a casual relationship with his Christian next door neighbor. They visited over the back fence. They loaned each other lawn utensils and stuff like that. And then the non-Christian's wife developed cancer. And three months later, she died. Here's part of a letter that she wrote after that happened, that, that he wrote, rather, the, the, Christian, the non-Christian man wrote after his wife died. I was in total despair. I went through the funeral preparations and the service like I was in a trance. After the service, I went to the path along the river and walked all night. But I didn't walk alone. My neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. He did not speak. He did not even walk beside me. He just followed me. When the sun finally came up over the river, he came over and said, let's go get some breakfast. I go to church now, my neighbor's church. A religion that can produce the kind of caring and love my neighbor showed me is something I want to find out more about. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. Well, that's just one example. We see the exhortation to live good lives all over the New Testament. Christians are to do good wherever they are. One of the verses we often repeat for our uh, giving time is they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18. Peter echoes what he's saying here in chapter 2 over in chapter 3 and verses 10 and following, 10, 11, and 12. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those 
who do evil. So that's actually echoing the, the end of chapter 2, verse 12, and glorify God on the day He visits us. All the good that we do is done with the full consciousness of the fact that God is watching, God is going to come, and God is either going to reward or judge us according to our behavior. Now, it's no secret that short of the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, that America, the American body politic is about as divided as it has ever been. We have massive disagreements flowing from completely contrary views of what it means to be human, of even of reality, and of what it means to be good. Many of us have been party to or unwitting dupes of political activists whose sole aim is to sow division among Americans for the sake of power and profit. And they aren't actually interested in solving problems because they have a vested interest in keeping the problems alive and keeping us angry at each other and thereby keeping us divided. So, but Christians at all levels of life are called to a higher plane, a higher kind of living than that. So what does it mean to do good in the world? Just this, our presence should make any society more honest, less corrupt, more orderly, less chaotic, more considerate, and less combative. Our presence should make any society more honest, less corrupt, more orderly, less chaotic, more considerate, and less combative. So if we're going to be God's sojourners, God's pilgrims, God's chosen strangers doing good in the world, Peter says we need two things. Number one, we must know the good and pursue it. But before that, we must get a handle on ourselves. Number two, we have to get a handle on ourselves, the things inside us that seek to destroy us. And as a result, destroy our testimony or our ability to do good. So Peter begins actually with that second one. He begins with abstain from sinful desires, he says in verse 11. Now, we've all got desires. God built our desires into us. We have a desire for food. We have a desire for sunshine. We have a desire for happiness. We have a desire for sex. We have a desire for donuts. We have a desire for ice cream. We have a desire for blue bunny, caramel crunch, frozen yogurt. Man, I love that stuff. But sin can pervert our desires and we can be tempted to satisfy our bodily desires in sinful ways. Sin can amplify those desires and blow them in like a bonfire to where they overcome all sense or reasonability. The Apostle Paul takes us deeper into that when he talks about the spiritual power of what, what he says to the Galatians, our flesh and the spirit, our flesh and the spirit, life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. He says to the Galatians in chapter five, verse 16. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. Peter says these are things that war against us. They're in conflict with our souls. Paul wanted us to understand that there are two things, the two things that we need to know about our flesh and our spirit. The flesh, Paul said, is the enemy. 
Whenever Paul talked about the flesh, most of the time when he talked about this theological, spiritual concept called the flesh, he used a Greek word uh, pronounced this way, sarx. That's different from the Greek word, the normal Greek word he would use for our bodies, our physical bodies, which is soma. So when Paul, most of the time, when Paul used the word sarx, he was talking about a spiritual concept. Evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. You can see this going on. He does an incredible job of articulating this in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and following. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. That's how the NIV translates sarks. Whenever you see sinful nature, that's usually translating sarks. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Lord, I keep on being a passive aggressive. I keep on manipulating. I keep on being a narcissist. I keep on lying about things that are completely irrelevant. I don't have to tell a lie to cover anything up. Why do I do these things? I keep wanting to steal. I keep having thieving thoughts. I keep having covetousness where I'm walking past my neighbor's really nice two-car, 4,000 square feet garage, and I covet it. Why does that happen? Maybe you don't have that problem. That happens to me when I walk by 4,000 square foot garages. So he says, I find this law at work. Verse 21, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, that's in this Holy Spirit working in him, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. That's the flesh. The flesh has desires that are contrary to the Spirit's desires for us. Second, the flesh and the Spirit are at war. There's an actual battle going on. The Spirit desires to bring the life of Jesus out in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and the like. He wants us to experience the full joy of life the way God designed it for us to experience. Life and abundance. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, you have a desire for good. You long for good the way a hawk longs for the wind and flies in it. But the flesh is like the, the force of gravity and it wants to pull us down, always pull us down. Therefore, Peter says, abstain. He says, abstain from this. Really interesting um, use of this word and it is... The Greek word, which I'm not going to try to translate, I didn't even write it down, but it literally means put some distance between you and whatever this thing is. I like that picture. Put some distance between you. So Paul was even blunter with Timothy. He said, flee, run away from youthful lusts. Run away from this stuff. Get out of here. As Alistair Begg said recently, this is godliness in working man's clothes. This is plain, simple Easy to understand stuff. Put some distance between you and whatever it is that is warring against your soul. Uh, Beg talks about being in a restaurant. He said, you can talk yourself into a piece of apple pie. Even though you have decided, 
and made the most resolute commitment that apple pie is off the menu. And you can do it, he said, at least I can, in a very short period of time, as long as it takes for the waitress to make one revolution of the table and write down what everybody wants. First time, oh, no, no, apple pie is not my thing, he says. It's, it's not on my diet. And then you listen, and they come, and you know she's coming around to you again. And by the time she gets there, you've said to yourself, well, a little apple pie won't hurt. And you've talked yourself into it. And so Peter would say, no, abstain. Put some distance between you and that pie. It's making war against your waistline. And that's easy to understand, and all of us fight those battles. But some things that war against our souls are more subtle than that. And they destroy our ability to be a force for good. A few years ago, there was a very gifted and prominent pastor in the United Kingdom, and he left his wife and his family in favor of a friend. And there was this great hullabaloo that happened, and lots of articles in both the Christian and the secular press. And among those articles was one from the Daily Telegraph, written by a lady named Ann Atkins. Ann Atkins. And she talked about how she could hardly... She could think of hardly anyone less likely to abandon his loved ones than this highly respected and revered pastor. But she said she was not surprised. She'd been prepared for it for a very important reason. This is what she said. When I was younger, remember she's a journalist. When I was younger, I used to find some Christian teaching rather gloomy. The doctrine of total depravity, for instance, I preferred to think everyone's jolly nice, really, and so we are, and we're all made in the image of God with a divine stamp on us all. But she said, the Bible also teaches that we have fallen from this created ideal, and now we're rotten through and through. All of us. I have friends who consider this deeply offensive, but as I have got older, I found it increasingly liberating. You see, I too am an adulterer. A few years ago, I was in a remote part of the world alone with the owner of an idyllic island. As the days went by, he became more attentive and more attractive. It was an extremely pleasant sensation. I was enjoying myself greatly. My work required me to be there. And my head insisted that I was above temptation, but I'm not. The Bible tells me so. Consequently, I knew I must leave urgently, and I did. By the grace of God, I didn't commit adultery, not then and not yet. But it's there in my heart, biding its time. Jesus said that makes me as bad as the worst offender. Happily, because I've always been taught that I am capable of adultery... I've always been on my guard against it. After all, it doesn't start when you jump into bed with your lover, but months, years earlier, when you tell yourself that your friend understands you better than your spouse. You see, it's all very subtle, this war that goes on. And whatever it is, whether it's greed whether it's some kind of 
substance abuse or addiction, whether it's um, a penchant towards anger or bullying or self-pity, it, it's all very subtle. We just tell ourselves, well, yeah, but if they really understood. So Ann Atkins did exactly what Peter said do. She put some distance between herself and the man on the island. And we need to take note of that because we are no better than anybody else. We can fall just like that, just as fast, and the destruction to our ability to do good and people's confidence in us as members of the kingdom of God can be wiped out in a moment. Therefore, put some distance between you and the things that war against your soul. So that's the negative command. Now Peter moves on to the positive. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that they will see your good works and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Another way to say that is keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why is he saying that? Well, Christians were being accused of several things in the Roman Empire at the time. They were being accused of terrorism. Uh, Rome had burned, and when it burned, some say Nero did it. But when it burned, all of their temples burned down and their idols with them. Their homes, so all of their places of worship were gone, and they were learning that their deities couldn't protect them. Here they were, the great and mighty Rome that could conquer the world, but no Roman deity could protect their city. Their homes burned down, so they were homeless. It created a, uh, an economic crisis. It created a humanitarian crisis of massive proportions. And so they're all looking at Nero. Rumors are starting to go around that Nero started this. So Nero shifts, and shifts the blame and says it's the Christians that did it. So they were being accused of terrorism. They were being accused of cannibalism because of the practice of communion and how that was talked about. They were being accused of immorality because there was such an emphasis on loving one another. They were being accused of economic sabotage. If you remember in Ephesians, in, in Ephesus, where Paul taught in Ephesus for two years, and people were getting rid of their idols, and the guys who actually, the silversmiths, who made those little idols that people would buy and carry all over the Roman world were losing business. They were being accused of atheism because they would not worship the emperor and they would not worship in other in idol temples. They were also being accused of insurrection or fomenting insurrection when Paul, for example, taught that slaves were equal before God, before their owners and other free people. So they're being accused of several things. And Peter says, live such good lives in this situation that people will be able to see your life and see the goodness of your life and then glorify God. They won't be able to do anything else. I like this command because it does three things. First, goodness gathers up a whole lot of ideas and puts them all under one umbrella. Second, goodness is a concept with a high level of specificity in Scripture, and it has been hollowed out and turned on its head in our day. Goodness has a source. It has a definition. It's objective. It's not based on feelings or sentiment. Goodness has boundaries. Some things are good. Others are not good. And those things can be known. 
And then finally, doing good is a constant theme in the New Testament, as we mentioned before. Now, the, <clears throat> pardon me, the Greek word here that, Paul, that Peter uses is kalos, kalos. And that's an adjective meaning the moral excellence of a person or the quality of a thing. Another way that they would talk about it is they would use the adjective handsome. Now, we don't use that so much. We use it talking about usually men. Say he's a handsome fellow. But a hundred years ago in English, a couple of hundred years ago in, in um, Anglican English, they would say, well, that was handsomely done. When you see something that was well built or somebody that, that pulled off some sort of ministry or some sort of service, then somebody else would say, that was handsomely done. I like that phrase. So, for example, World Magazine had a story recently about a community Catholic church that helped a family in need. There was drug cartel and violence in Colombia 20 years ago, and that drove Cesar Grajales, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and his father Javier to immigrate to the United States. That was about 20 years ago. So his parents in Colombia ran a sewing business, and they had to sell their sewing machines to pay their debts. So Javier and his father Cesar arrived in Miami with $80 in cash. That's all they had. A family friend who managed a bakery allowed them to stay in her home for one week. And she asked, she asked Caesar, she said, can you bake cookies? He said, yes. I'd never baked a cookie in my life. But I said, yes, I'm willing to do anything. Then members of the, their local Catholic parish helped them find work with landscaping crews, painting crews, construction crews. Three months later, they had enough to bring Caesar's mother and sister to Miami, and then after a year of saving, they bought two sewing machines and they were later able to open up a small luxury fashion studio in downtown Miami. Now, I look at that and I say, that was handsomely done. That church and that community got together and said, we understand where you came from. We're not gonna hand you anything, but we're gonna make it possible for you to survive here and build a life in this country. That's doing good. And we need to be thinking about things like that. We need to be trying to understand ourselves. It's like, Lord, how do we look at our world out beyond, outside these walls, outside this membership and say, how can we participate in that kind of good? I'm not talking about breaking immigration laws or anything like that. I'm just saying, how can we participate in that kind of good? Peter's saying, think about these things. Figure out how to do that. That is a testimony to the world that you represent the kingdom of God. There are four characteristics of the good that are talked about in the Bible, in the New Testament. Number one, God is good. Remember when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, and Jesus stops him right there. Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. So he is the good. Only God is good. Jesus, by the way, is equating himself with God. You want to call me good? Then you're calling me God. You want to be like God? He says, keep the commandments. The commandments were given not to put us in a straitjacket. The Ten Commandments were given to Israel so that they could build the good community. Things like don't lie, don't steal, honor your father and mother, worship God only, take a Sabbath. Those are for the good of the community. That's what makes a healthy community. Young man says, okay, I've done all that. 
Then Jesus takes it one step further. If you want to be complete in goodness, get rid of the idol in your bank account and follow me. In other words, I am goodness personified. So he equates himself with God. Goodness is a person. God is the good. Jesus is the good. Second, we cannot be good without God. Strictly speaking, we cannot know the good or do the good without him. We read about that in Romans. What a hard time we have doing that kind of thing. We're even take capable of taking something good, the law in this case, and using it for evil. Paul said he would do that in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Third, and this is why I'm spending this much time developing this idea. We cannot take the world's definition of good at face value. We cannot take the world's definition of good at face value. We've got to hold it up against the standard of the goodness and character of God and determine whether or not it really is the good. That's Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in your thinking by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve. So whatever is coming from the world, you'll be able to test it against God, against God's character, against what God says is true, and then say it's either true or it's not, and I can either participate in it or I can abstain from it. The way Isaiah talked about this in chapter 5 said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So what we're doing as we, as we learn how to think like this is say, does the world's definition of the good measure up to God's? And if so, we can say, yeah, I can participate in that. That's a great thing. I'm going to go be part of that. Or, no, I can't be part of that. I've got to put a barrier between me and that activity, whatever it may be. And that's, that's your homework to figure out what those things are. Lastly, just developing this idea of, of goodness and, and that God is the center of it, we as believers are created to do good. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what we were designed to do. And he planned ahead of time for us to do those things. To do them with quality, to do them with excellence, to do them with praiseworthiness in every field where we serve in keeping with the good as defined by God. But no matter what else is happening, no matter what the issue may be, our job by word and by deed is to point people to the person who is the ultimate goodness, and that's Christ. So I was looking and I found a story of a guy named Tom, Tom Young who has figured out how to do that. Tom Young is a Southern Baptist. And he's a volunteer in their disaster relief ministry. Kind of like Samaritan's Purse does. I think the Southern Baptist Convention kind of has its own 
unit that does those kinds of things. When Hurricane Sally wreaked havoc, here's a little bit of the backstory on this. When Hurricane Sally hit the Gulf Coast back in September of 2020, volunteers from the Florida Baptist Convention were mobilized into action to assist in the cleanup and the rebuilding process. We know what that's like. We've done those kinds of things with Samaritan's Purse. That particular delegation was typical, however, of many of these response teams. According to Religion News Service, more than half of the national voluntary organizations which are active in disaster relief are faith-based organizations. So Samaritan's Purse, the Baptists, even the Red Cross, uh, Adventists, Methodists, there's all kinds up that are faith-based organizations. We think of uh, God's pit crew. We help support these guys here. And research shows that, get this, isn't this great? They're often composed of white Christian retirees. So old white Christian guys like me are the guys who make up most of those volunteer, at least half of the emergency relief volunteer activity in this country is populated by old white Christian volunteers. But the demographics are telling kind of a bad story. The demographics are trending downward for most of the large white Christian denominations, and it looks like the pool of available volunteers is steadily getting older and smaller. And so that begs the question, what will happen, what's going to become of faith-based disaster relief when fewer people are available who have faith in Jesus and are called to do good works and believe they ought to be doing this. Well, there's a political science professor named Ryan Burge, and he said this, the average American doesn't realize all the things that churches do to make society less awful. And it's not just disaster relief. He says, especially younger, religiously unaffiliated people don't appreciate the role of organized religion is a power for good. He says it's one of those things where you don't know what you had until it's gone. And so this fellow, Tom Young, the Southern Baptist I talked about, he sees this happening. He goes out on these trips and he works and he sees that his generation is aging out. And he also sees something else. He sees younger people coming in who are not people of faith. They don't go to church. They just see a disaster and they, they want to help. And so they just show up, but they don't know what to do. A lot of times they'll get in the way. So Young has this plan. He said, I'm a full believer that we're going to have to embrace the SUV community. That's what he calls them. The spontaneous, untrained volunteers who show up in a disaster's aftermath. He said, it's better to have people there who know what they're doing, who can actually lead these young folks and teach them how to do things properly so he's going to expand his ministry of goodness, not just by going and actually doing the rescue work and doing the recovery work, but about teaching other young people to do it with them, whether they're part of his church or not. And he says, as a side benefit, it gives me an opportunity for, for evangelism. When I'm working side by side with these guys, I can tell them about Jesus. And so even though he's doing this good stuff, he's keeping the main thing the main thing. Everything becomes an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Every good work is an opportunity. 
His wife says the same thing. Your life might be the only Bible most people ever read. So even in unfavorable circumstances, which we find ourselves in increasingly, we can be faithful to the work of Jesus. We just have to look for, okay, this looks like a problem. Lord, show me how it's an opportunity to do good so that people may glorify you. One of the most important things that we can do as we are rebuilding the sacred community is realize we are not here for ourselves. We are here and created to do good works so that even when people are saying scandalous things about us, they will see those good works and glorify our Father on the day He comes to take us home. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for um, what you are continuing to do through FCC. I thank you for how you are leading this church. I thank you, Father, for the opportunities that are in front of us, sometimes that look just like overwhelming problems to us. And I pray that you would help us to see them as opportunities and help us to see how you would have us meet them as such in a way that we can preach the gospel in them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.